Well, there were two men who were shipwrecked on a deserted island. And as they began looking around, one of them saw how desolate it was. And in despair, he said to the other man that was with him, we're going to die. And this other guy said to him, we're going to be fine. I make $100,000 a week. And his, his friend said, are you nuts? I don't care how much money you make. What good is your money going to do us here on this island? And this other guy smiled at him and he said, I make $100,000 a week. And every Sunday I go to church and I tithe 10% of it. I can promise you my pastor will look for us until we're found. (laughs) Right about now, some of you are looking for the exits, thinking this pastor wants to get your money. Uh, You can relax. We've already given our offerings to God. There's not going to be another round. The plates aren't coming back around, so just relax. And if you're here and thinking, well, this is why I never come to church. Pastors always want my money. This church must be in trouble financially. You can relax there as well. Uh, Through the generosity of God's people, Wayside uh, is doing great. We're at 98% of budgeted giving. Our reserve accounts are fully funded. So uh, I'm not talking about this today because I want your money. I'm not talking about this today because we're in financial crisis. I'm talking about this today because as we're going through this series in the book of Nehemiah, we're in the second part of chapter 10. And as you turn in your Bible today to Nehemiah chapter 10, what you're going to see is that God is talking about giving today. I want to remind you of the context that as we were looking at chapter 10 last week, Jason took us through the first part where the people made a covenant, a commitment to God. And they said there are three things that we want to see happening in our lives, three changes we're going to make. And they committed in verses 28 through 29 to follow God's law. And then in verses 30 through 31, they said they would be a separate and a holy people. And as we come today to verses 32 through 39, what we see is they commit to share in the blessings of supporting God's work. So I invite you to look with me now as we begin reading in Nehemiah 10, uh, beginning in verse 32. It says, We also placed ourselves under obligation to the contribution yearly for one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, so that they might bring it to the house of our God according to our father's households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law, and that they might bring in the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually, and to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We also will bring in the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, the new oil to the priest in the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are those who receive the tithes in all of the rural towns. Now, what we see here is as the people pledge this support, uh, they say in verse 32, one of the things they begin with is the temple tax, which we see is described here as being one-third of a shekel. Now, if you read Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, 
what the law prescribes there is that the amount was to be a half shekel. And so we've just seen where the people said, we're going to follow the law of God. And if God's law said there's to be a half shekel, why are they giving a third of a shekel? Well, part of what we see here, some will tell you, is there's tough economic times. Remember, the people have come out of captivity. They're resettling in the land. And some will tell you, well, they've reduced the amount because the the resources of the people are limited. But if you read Exodus 30.15, what it tells us there is the rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give to the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So the reason for the difference here is not tied to the economics. It's tied to the currency of the day. If you were to go to Canada right now and you were to convert the U.S. dollar to the Canadian dollar, what you would find is you're paying between 70 and 75 American cents for every one Canadian dollar. The American dollar is stronger than the Canadian dollar. And what we're dealing with here is the people who have come out of captivity are under the Persian system. And the Persian shekel, a shekel was not just currency, it was actually a measure of weight. And the Persian shekel was a heavier coin than was the the one that the Jews were using. And so this is what the difference is. If you look at Exodus 30.13, it specifies the exact weight of the half shekel was to be 20 geras, or what we would have in our system of two ounces. So they're giving the same value. It's just a, a different coin. The people also committed here to provide the showbread. Now, the showbread were 12 special loaves that you would find in the temple. If you went into the inner temple right before the veil where the Holy of the Holies was, there were a variety of tables and various things. There was the lampstand and the golden incense, and you had the table of showbread, which was a golden table, and it had 12 large special loaves that were there. And these loaves, again, are very specifically prescribed in, in the Old Testament as to what they were. In Leviticus 24.5, it says each of these loaves is to be made with four quarts of fine flour. And then they were arranged in, in these rows representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the word showbread literally means the presence of the face. And so it described how this bread before God was a reminder to him of the 12 tribes of the people. And it was a very fine and large loaf of bread. And there were 12 of them. And what would happen is every Sabbath they would come in and they would remove the 12 loaves and they would put 12 fresh ones there. And this bread was then used to help feed the priest and the Levites. So all of these offerings were were ways that the provision was also being made to take care of those who served in the temple. The people we see also pledged to provide for the continual grain offering, which is prescribed in Numbers chapter 28. And then it says the continual burnt offering. And the the Old Testament law again prescribes there would be a lamb offered in the morning and one at night. And this grain, this meat, all these things that were coming from these offerings were then used to to provide and feed for the priests and the Levites that were serving there in the temple. You should remember that before the revival that is happening here in Nehemiah chapter 10, we talked earlier in this series about how the priests and the Levites were having to fend for themselves rather than be able to be fully devoted to doing God's work. You'll remember in the background I told you how when Ezra led the first wave back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, uh, none of the Levites came to go with them. They had been in captivity. They had not been provided for through the offerings and sacrifices. And so they had built homes, they had established businesses, and they were feeding themselves and their families through other ways. 
And so when it came time to return to the land, they, they said, we're taking care of ourselves. But God had wanted them to be set aside as vocational ministers. And so now as they're back in the land, there has to be a way to pay them, so to speak, to provide for them. And that's what this system is, is taking place that we're reading about. Now here in verse 34, we're told one of the ways the people also freed up the priests to work in the temple was by going to get the wood needed for the altar. If you read Leviticus chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, it says that the, the fire on the altar was to burn continually, day and night. And if you've ever built a fire and you've thrown some logs on it, you know that you have to keep feeding the fire. As you think in terms of the altar, I want you to think about what it really was. It wasn't like our backyard barbecues. It wasn't like a little fire pit maybe that you have outside in your yard. This thing was massive. Uh, it wasn't quite the Aggie bonfire size, but it was about that size in terms of the, the wood consumed. It was huge amounts of cords and cords of wood to keep this, this altar burning. Remember, they would present and put whole bowls on the fire, on the altar. And so this was a massive fire that was kept burning day and night. And in order to do this, uh, the priests would have to go out and collect wood and come in. We read that the lots were cast and the allotments then were bringing people in to take over, providing for some of the wood uh, for the fire. As you think in terms about the size of, of that altar, I want you just to think about a facility like you're sitting in right now here at Wayside 410 or those who are out at Stone Oak. Uh, we don't have a fire going, but we have heaters and air conditioners for climate control. There's cleaning that takes place. There's maintenance of the property. There are various things that are happening all throughout uh, in order to keep a facility like this going so that we can gather together and we can worship and we can reach out into the community. And the offerings that you give are used uh, to help take care of these things. As we're talking about what the people in our passage give, it's not just their treasures. As we talk about giving to God, it's not just your treasure, it's your time. It's your talents. It's the things that we do. Uh, in terms of a wood offering, just a few weeks ago out at Stone Oak, uh, at our campus there, there was a work day going. And here you see one of the young men in our church kind of has a wood offering, right? He's, he's dragging away branches and things that had, had been cut out there at the facility to try to, you know, there's 19 acres out there and there's the three buildings and the things that are happening and back behind the children's building is this play area where our Kids Day Out program and where the, the children on a Sunday morning are out there playing on the playground. And if you were to fall off some of that equipment, you know, the law says there's to be a certain level of cushioning and things. And so what you see them doing here is remulching the area there to provide, you know, a safe environment where the kids will be protected as you're out there using the facilities. And then as you come to the worship center, that top picture's a little dark and hard to see, but they're, they've got a bobcat pulling out these old big yucca and cactus plants and things that had died off. And then you see them beautifying, you know, men from the church are in there landscaping and doing this. This is a wood type of offering where they're giving of their time. Priests would have to leave the temple. They would have to go into the uh, surrounding wilderness and they would have to cut down or collect wood and then they would have to bring it back in in order to keep this going. But if people gave of their time to go and do these things, they were able to free the priest up to be able to do the work that is happening. 
As you look at verse 29, it ends with the people saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. And all the things that you do uh, allow us to do that. Right now, if you go in the 300 building, it's being repainted, it's being recarpeted. This summer, we're going to be reflooring the halls and the classrooms in the children's building, which was recently painted as well. And these are things, again, to, to steward what God has given to us, and it's able to be done through the gifts that you give here at Wayside. And others of you give sacrificially of your time to serve all throughout the week. It, it happens when you come on Wednesday night or Thursday with Awana or the Friday uh, activities and the women's and the men's studies and the other things. There, there's a small army right now, if you go into the children's building, that are caring for the children. So people are giving of their time. You've heard us talking about Echo Weekend this morning. And here's a picture of the kickoff event out at Stone Oak. And you see that big X, and if you're wondering, what's with the X hoodies? Uh, the, the X stands for two things. One, it's a Roman numeral 10, because this is our 10th year of doing this in-town discipleship weekend. And it's also the Greek letter chi, which stands for Christ or Christos in the, the Greek New Testament. And so we had uh, 170 of our middle school and high school students, many of whom you see here, uh, most are still awake. Uh, some will be going to sleep soon uh, because they've been up since Friday night. Uh, so they've been, you know, in homes and they've been in cars. And some of the adults around you that are wearing the X shirts are also asleep because they've been up with these kids since Friday night. And it's been an intense weekend where they spent time uh, immersed in God's word, hearing the good news of the gospel. And, you know, it takes hundreds. You heard almost 100 volunteers to feed them, to drive them to the activities, to be part of all that took place through this weekend. So I want to say to you, thank you. Thank you for all of you who gave of your time. I want to thank the students for giving up a weekend of yours to go deeper in your walk with God. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's hard when you're at school and you think you're the only person who believes in Christ, when you have people who make fun of you and other things. And weekends like this are so important because you're able to look around and you're able to see you're not alone. You're able to see there are other uh, young men and women who believe as you do, others who believe that walking and following Christ is, is key to life and the gift of eternal life that he offers. And so weekends like this are life-changing for the students, and it's life-changing uh, for those who have been impacted and involved. I loved in the first service looking out and seeing many of our white-haired senior saints wearing these X hoodies, you know, <laughs> with some street cred because they gave, <laughs> they gave of their time, you know, to shepherd and to be with these students and to see the, the generational ministries that take place here at Wayside. So, again, these are just uh, exciting things that I, I hope you're not missing. And some are serving right now. You know, you don't think about it. There are people up in the crow's nest that are running the lights and the sound. The only time we ever know they're there is when something goes wrong and everybody looks around to see, you know, what's going on. There are others who serve in behind-the-scenes places, the bulletins that you get on a Sunday, the communion on the first Sundays of the, the month when the trays are prepared. You don't see the people who are behind the scenes uh, doing these things. You don't see the men and women on the leadership teams who plan out the studies, who plan out the retreats, like the men's retreat that's coming. And, and these are people who are serving faithfully 
behind the scenes, giving a wood offering of sorts, where they're giving of their time, they're giving of their talents. So these are, are things that we're reading about here in, in Nehemiah chapter 10. We're told here in Nehemiah 10.35 that the people also gave offerings from their first fruits. And what would happen is as the harvest took place, the people would bring the first and the best of their crops to give to God as a thanksgiving offering. And if you look closely at verse 35, you, you see that the people go beyond the requirements of the law because it says to us there they pledged to bring the fruit of every tree. And you go, well, what's the big deal about every tree? Well, what the law prescribed is that there were seven. There were seven trees that the people had to bring the fruit from. But here we see this overflow of generosity where the people were not just limited by a legalistic obedience, but they were giving abundantly above and beyond what the law required of them. In verse 39, we see another offering that was tied to thanksgiving. It says they, they gave the offering of their firstborn, both of people and animals. During the, the plagues in Egypt, as you read the book of Genesis, you recall that God brought these plagues upon the livestock of the land. And, and the last plague was on the firstborn of all in Egypt. And as the angel of death came through the city, uh, any home that had not had the blood of the lamb painted on the doorpost of the home, uh, the firstborn in that house would die. But when the angel of death saw it, he passed over that home. That's why the Passover celebration is so named. And so what would happen is this was a reminder to the people as they made these offerings of the firstborn. Uh, when, a, when a son or a daughter was born, they didn't offer the child as a sacrifice, but they would offer and redeem and buy back that, that baby through a firstborn offering. But the firstborn that opened the womb of the animals was given. Again, there was a, a substitutionary sacrifice that could be made in certain cases. And so as the people are bringing the firstborn offerings, it's a reminder to them of, of God's substitution, of God's gift and how he protected them. And when it comes to us in the New Testament times where we understand who Jesus Christ was, Jesus, the promised Messiah, as the students were hearing about, who was born this virgin gift, this baby who came, he would ultimately go from the baby of Bethlehem to be the Christ of Calvary. He was the Lamb of God, the sacrifice sent to pay the penalty of death for our sins. John 3.16 tells us about God's gift to us as it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have the gift of eternal life. Jesus Christ came. He took on flesh and blood because the book of Hebrews says without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness of sins. And we are all sinners. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 the wages of sin is death. There's a penalty that had to be paid, a price, a redemption cost. And when Jesus went to the cross, when he died for us, he was our substitution. He was our payment. He paid the penalty of death in full. And he rose from the dead on the third day, showing he had conquered sin and death and Satan. And he offers to us that free gift of eternal life. As you think about the blessings that God has given to you, what, what are you doing with them? The greatest blessing is that of Jesus Christ, the greatest gift God has ever given. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want you to know that when the offering plate is passed, we don't want you to put anything in it. 
Now that woke somebody up. They're saying, did I just hear a pastor tell me not to put any money in the offering plate? Yes, I did. If you are a person who doesn't know who Jesus Christ is, if you have not accepted God's Son and his gift to you of grace, don't put anything in the offering plate when it passes. We don't want a penny from you. What we want you to do instead is receive. We want you to receive the free gift of God. God died and he paid the penalty of death for you and me. He was the redemption, the purchase price. And when we give to God, we give as an act of acknowledgement, first of love. His love for us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We were talking about the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn and the only son, the only begotten son of God. And he gave us the gift of his son so that we could have the gift of eternal life. And if you've never received that gift, I ask that you receive it instead of giving. And for those of us who have received that gift, we give as an acknowledgement of who God is and what he's given to us. It is a thanksgiving offering for him. This is where the giving of a tithe comes from. You heard the word tithe read several times here in the passage. And the word tithe literally means a tenth. And where it comes from is if you read Genesis chapter 14, what you'll find is that there was a group of foreign kings who invaded the land where Abraham and his nephew Lot were living. And as they came in, they captured Lot and his family and his servants, and, and they took his, his livestock and they took his crops and his riches. And as they were returning back to their country, carrying Lot and his family in captivity, Abraham came upon it and found that they had been taken away. Now, these were, these were a foreign army, a large army, and Abraham at the time only had a small militia of his servants. And he went after this, this foreign set, uh, these, this army, and he attacked them. And through God's enablement and empowerment, they were able to defeat the enemy. And he, he re captured Lot and his family. He took back the loot that had been taken and not only what had been stolen, but then he took the loot from this army that had been defeated. And as he's returning back to the land with all of these riches, he encounters a man by the name of Melchizedek. Now you see I have Hebrews chapter 7 there. In the New Testament, we see that this concept of a tithe is applied and explained for us in the New Testament. So let me read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, because it tells us what happened as Abraham is loaded down with loot from his victory. It says in Hebrews 7, 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth, there's the tithe, a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all by translation of his name. This is speaking of Melchizedek again. His name means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, for he abides a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest office have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. So what's going on here is this. 
In, Abraham, uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4, Abraham is called the patriarch. That's a big word that means he's the father of the line. Now, you'll know that Abraham is revered universally by both Jews, Christians, and Arabs as the father of nations. God made a covenant with Abraham and Sarah and said, I will raise up for you uh, descendants too innumerable to count. And you'll remember the line, uh, there was the, the disobedience where he went outside with Hagar, and that's where the Arab line came from. And so whether you talk to Arabs or Jews or Christians, you will hear that Abraham is this man to be revered, this, this patriarch. And yet what we find is in verse 4, it says, Now observe how great this man was, Melchizedek, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Now, Melchizedek is a type of foreshadowing of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. We see that he's called the king of Salem. Uh, Jerusalem is Salem, the house of peace. And this is where he's from. He is called the priest of the Most High God. Uh, Jesus, as you know, is both the high priest as well as the Messiah. So there's this dual role that's pointed to. Verse 3 tells us he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. So this is giving us a type of Christ pointing to head to who the Messiah Jesus was. And so he is the, this Melchizedek was a representative of God. And so the tithe was given to Melchizedek by proxy to God. And then we see there's a transference that goes to the priests and the Levites. Now, in terms of giving a tithe, uh, I've just explained where the tithe came from. So what the Bible gives us is a tithe is the biblical standard that shows another is greater than you are, and that you're acknowledging that with your gift. That's what a tithe is. We recognize that God is greater than we are, and we give to him a gift. And as we give to him, tithing is worship. Worship is a word that literally means to declare the worth-ship of another. It denotes the worthiness of an individual to receive special honor in accordance with that worth. And so what we've seen here is we're talking about the tithe. Uh, we saw in Hebrews 10.5 that it was transferred to the priest and the Levites, who again are representatives of God in terms of the worship that we give. Now, this is done because they serve as God's representatives as they perform his work, which is why we continue to give a tithe in modern times. I am not uh, a completed Jew. I am not of the Levitical line, but I am uh, a priest, a pastor. I'm a vocational minister, just as others on our staff are. And so what happens is the gifts that are given through Wayside are used to support the work of God, whether it's paying my salary, whether it's the support that we give to missionaries around the world, whether it's stewarding the facilities, as I talked about earlier. So the gifts that we give through worship are not about meeting the budget. This, again, is a, a form of our worship where we give to God as an acknowledgement of who he is. Now, as I'm talking about this, what I'm telling you applies to me as well as a minister. I will talk to young pastors, people who are going into ministry, staff members of ours, who will sometimes say to me, uh, Roger, am I supposed to tithe? You know, because my life is really my, my giving to God because I'm vocationally serving him. 
And if you're wondering whether pastors or people in full-time ministry should, should tithe and give to God as well, I want you to look at Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 38 through 39. Because there it says, And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering to the gatekeepers and the singers. Uh, We see that they're tithing as well. We see that they're not only serving, but they're giving of gifts as well. And when I received my paycheck from Wayside Chapel, this is a matter of full disclosure. People sometimes say to me, well, do you give? Yes, I give. And what I give is 10%. Uh, I actually give through what we have is payroll deduction here at Wayside Chapel. Many of you do your giving through electronic giving. Uh, Before I ever received my paycheck, our director of finance takes 10% of my salary and immediately gives it back to Wayside Chapel. And I do that not because the elders are looking and saying, well, is our pastor tithing? I don't do that because some of you are going to ask me. I do that because I understand what a biblical tithe is. I give not legalistically. I give not because I'm under obligation. I give because I'm acknowledging that God is superior to me, that everything he has given to me, whether it's the breath in my body, the strength in my hands, uh, the paycheck I receive, just as you do, God has given everything to us. And my giving is an acknowledgement of who he is. It is a form of my worship. I sit down with my family. I talk with my kids about our giving. My wife and I pray through our giving. Now, I told you I give the first 10% to Wayside Chapel, and I do that because I believe in the ministry here. I believe in the work that God is doing in and through our church. But I don't let that biblical standard of a tithe uh, drive me legalistically, and I also don't let that limit me in what I give. Uh, I give beyond 10%. Again, I'm not sharing this to brag. I'm sharing this in all transparency because people sometimes say, well, what should we do? Uh, And I'll talk about in a moment what you should do personally. But one of the blessings and challenges of being in ministry is there are a lot of men and women I went through seminary with who were in full-time missionary service. And so if you think you have a number of missionaries who contact you for personal support, uh, imagine what I face. (laughs) Friends of mine call me. Friends of mine see me. They write me letters and say, hey, could you support us as missionaries? And there are outside individual ministries that my family supports. And there are others. I don't have enough that I can give away everything I have, and so I have to use wisdom. We prayerfully consider. And so I will say to friends of mine, I love you. I believe in the work you're doing, but I'm fully maxed out in what I can give. And so I put them on a list. And when somebody retires or God takes them home to be with him in heaven, uh, it opens up. Somebody can move up and be the next supported missionary that we do. And then there are times there are special projects, like when we did the sanctuary seating in here, where my wife and I will say, we're going to give an above and beyond all of our regular giving because we believe that this is a, a project that will help spread the good news of the gospel. And so for you, as we're talking about tithing, Uh, If you're saying, okay, Roger, just bottom line it for me. Should I give 10%? Is that before or after taxes? Uh, You know, what what should I give? Here's what should drive your giving. The principle of Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
We're talking about giving as a response of worship. We're talking about an overflow from our heart. And so what the Bible says is where your heart is, is where your treasure will go. And so it goes back to this concept of understanding who God is and our love for him that should drive your giving. And so it's up to you personally what you give to God and how you respond to what his word tells you. Now, as I said before, we don't give to be blessed. We give because we're already blessed. We've already received the greatest gift of all, eternal life. We've received the gift of breath in our body, strength in our hands, the ability to hold a job, to earn a living. And so these are things God has already given to us. We don't give to get. We don't sow a seed to reap a bigger harvest, as you'll hear in the prosperity gospel. We give as worship. Uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie, who's home with the Lord, wrote a book called Balancing the Christian Life. And in it, Dr. Ryrie says, how we use our money demonstrates the reality of our love for God. In some ways, it proves our love more conclusively than the depth of knowledge, length of prayers, or prominence of service. These things can be feigned, but the use of our possessions shows up for what we really are. As I said before, I'm not talking about giving today because we need to meet the budget. This isn't about paying the heating bill. This is about our hearts. Warren Wiersbe says, Giving is both the thermostat and the thermometer of the Christian life. It measures our spiritual temperature, and it helps to set it at the right level as well. Remember what is happening here in Nehemiah chapter 10 is the people were looking at their lives. And as they looked at their lives, they said, We need a reset. We've not been following God as closely as we should. We're going to begin to follow the law. We're going to begin to be a separate and holy people. And the third commitment they make is, and we're going to begin to set aside and share in the blessings of the work of God. And so their giving here was a reset of of their heart, of their temperature, of their giving to God. So as you look at your own life today, I want you to ask yourself, as we come to a close, are there any changes that you need to make? As you've been listening to this message, is there anything that God is prompting you to do in terms of making changes in your own life? It may be that there's somebody here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior yet. And what God may be prompting you this morning to do is to understand that you need to turn to Christ. You need to receive him as your Savior. Friends, if you've been putting money in an offering plate or giving to ministries because you think you're buying your way to heaven, stop it. Don't do that. Putting your money in an offering plate will not buy you a ticket home to heaven. Jesus Christ bought the ticket home for us. He paid the purchase price. He paid the penalty of death for us. He's given that as a free gift to you. You can do nothing to earn it. You can do nothing to buy it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift, not a purchase. It is a gift of God so that no one should boast. And so if you're giving to get, stop it. And if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, and God is prompting your heart this morning to recognize your need for him to be your Savior, I invite you to receive him as your your personal Savior. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. He tells us in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
And he invites you this morning to come into the family of God, receiving his gift of grace. It could be that somebody here this morning needs to make a change in how they give to God. Not of their money, but of their time or their talents. We saw where the people gave of the first fruits of their time. Do you give to God of the first fruits of your day? When you wake up in the morning, do you spend any time in prayer or Bible study? Or do you find each day that you get to the end of the day and you haven't had any time with God? Now, some of us are better in the afternoon or in the evening in terms of being with God. Don't force yourself to to say, it's morning, I have to have a devotion, and you wake up in a pool of drool because you've fallen asleep, you know, in prayer or, or the Bible. If you're better in the evening, then give that. But what I'm asking you is, does God get the first fruits of your time? The best or the first part of your day? So maybe the change some of us need to make today is to set aside time for God and to give to him of our our time for fellowship, to have that communion with God. It, It could be that there needs to be a change in the way we give to God, not just in the amount, but in the way we give. If you're somebody when the offering plate passes, you go, oh, great, it's time to pay the cover charge, you know. Let me put some money in there so the show can go on. Again, please don't give. If you don't want to give to Wayside Chapel to support the ministry here, then don't. God wants us to give as an overflow of gratitude. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if you've been giving to God out of legalistic obedience, feeling you have to do that, I want to remind you that when Jesus encountered the Pharisees, and, and they bragged about how they tithed. We give God 10% of everything. Remember, they said, we even tithe our spices. That would be like going home today, dumping out the salt shaker, counting out nine grains of salt for you and putting one aside for God. Nine for you, one for God. That's what they were doing. And they thought Jesus was going to commend them for being so great and righteous. But he said, you guys are legalists who have no heart in this. You're giving grudgingly. You're giving out of a, uh, a wooden rules and ritual obedience to the law. And he didn't commend them for that. He said, engage your hearts. So the change some of us may need to make this morning is to have more of a heart of gratitude and see this not as a tax that we pay to God, but instead recognizing that it is an overflow of thanksgiving for all that God has given to us. I want us to go to God in prayer now. I want you to think about those couple of areas that I highlighted that maybe there needs to be a change in your life. And I want you to just talk to God and and ask him to help you to recognize an area or some areas where maybe you need to make a change. And then I'll close this out in prayer. So let's go to God, talk to him personally in prayer, and then I'll close our time out in a moment. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've had time today to look at your word, to see what you teach us about who you are and what you've done. 
We thank you, God, for the example of the people in Nehemiah's day who recognized that there needed to be an overflow in their life of uh, being walking in a, a deep or abiding walk with you and that they responded in, in different ways to say we want to follow you more closely in obedience at the time to the law, to say we want to be a separate and holy people, to be different than those in the world around us, and lastly, to say we want to be involved in the privilege of taking part in supporting your ministry. And so, Father, for us this morning, there are areas that maybe you've been prompting us, Holy Spirit, to, to deal with in our own walk with you. It could be, Father, that there is someone here this morning who's still far from you, who's not yet received that gift of grace. And I pray this morning that would, this would be the day where they recognize that you are standing with open arms waiting to welcome them into the family and that they would receive that gift of grace, that gift of love as you gave your only begotten son, Jesus, to be the sacrifice, the payment, to purchase the gift of salvation. And I pray today might be the day where they receive that gift. Father, for others of us here today, the issue may be, as we've talked about, the first fruits of our time. We've maybe neglected to put you first on our calendar. We've been spending time in many other places and we've forgotten to give to you the best and the first of our time. Would we recognize that Every day is a gift from you, and to give back to you some of that. Lord, some of us need to make a change in how we give. Whether it's the amount or our hearts, would you guide us? Would we be those who give not out of legalistic obligation, but freely out of gratitude? As we come into this Thanksgiving season where we recognize just how blessed we are with so much, would there be an overflow in our own lives as we thank you? and give to you. Lord God, would you search us and help us? Would you help us to make the, challenge, the changes in our calendar and our checkbooks today so that we put you in your proper place of priority in our life, just as the people in Nehemiah's day did? We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ.